Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. The first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl growing up. One is Kit Kat. My, yeah. my great grandmother, uh, who's British, who was British. My grandmother would take me to her uh, senior citizens' home where she was. Uh, she had Alzheimer's, and so we would bring her Kit Kats. Um, and she wouldn't remember who we were, who my grandmother was, where she was, who she was, but she knew that 4 p.m. was Kit Kat time. Oh. Um, and it was, it was like a lovely experience with her. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Michelle Tate, the Chief Marketing Officer of Intuit MailChimp. MailChimp's target audience is most everyone listening to this podcast. MailChimp is an all-in-one marketing automation and email platform for growing businesses with a special focus on small and medium-sized businesses. The company was founded in 2001 in Atlanta, Georgia. Its roots are in email marketing, but it has evolved to offer a far wider range of services. Get this. MailChimp has 12 million regular users and sends out 500 million emails a day from its platform. Intuit purchased MailChimp in late 2021 for about $12 billion, and now MailChimp joins other Intuit portfolio brands such as TurboTax, QuickBooks, Mint, and Credit Karma. My guest, Michelle, was born and raised in Israel, traveled to the UK for university studies in art and design, and then started her career as a shoe designer for New Balance. Michelle left the shoe industry to earn her MBA at the Wharton School in Philadelphia, then worked seven years at Unilever before joining Intuit in late 2017. After Intuit acquired MailChimp in 2021, they appointed her CMO at the new acquisition. This is my conversation with the true Renaissance woman CMO, Michelle Tate. Welcome to the CMO Podcast, Michelle. You started your professional career as a footwear designer for New Balance. Were you a sneakerhead back then? Uh, definitely not a sneakerhead, but I do have uh, an obsession for shoes, so for sure. So you, you have become a sneakerhead? Somewhat, yes. Uh, but mostly recently because my team is so cool that I'm trying to keep up with their trendy uh, <laughs> yeah. footwear. Well, I asked my son around Christmas time, what new shoes should I buy? And he, he said, you should buy these two New Balance 990s. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're back in fashion for sure. They're back in fashion. So I have two pairs of those and I'm wearing them a lot these days. But I want to know what's the most famous shoe that you worked on as a designer? Oh, um, it was a um, it was a lifestyle shoe for the Japanese market. That was sort of a combination between a um, a sports shoe and a boot. Oh, wow. I just came from Japan. I was there last week and I wore my New Balance in Japan. And, uh, and I was, uh, I was seen as pretty cool last week. <laughs> I love it. I'm sure you're seen pretty cool every week. Now I want to start our discussion today or more serious discussion with four concepts that I know you believe really strongly in continuous learning, fearlessness, passion, and how humility and curiosity supercharge each other. So let's start with continuous learning. You are a voracious learner. I've seen and read that. So what are you voraciously learning about right now, Michelle? So many things. Um, so I, I, I am very, very curious about this sort of fine line between psychology and marketing. And so I read a lot of psychology books. They're not necessarily linked to business or, or mm-hmm. um, something that we're working on uh, then and there. But right now I am, I just finished reading a, a book called Couples That Work, which talk about sort of the transitions and the trade-offs between uh, dual career couples and sort of their lives and how they make decisions. Um, reading Stumbling on Happiness 
uh, with Dan Gilbert oh, yeah. around, uh, you know, how it's, I find it so fascinating to think about the fact that we're making decisions that we think are going to make us happy. But in, in real life, we have very little, um, you know, very little control. Um, and yeah, and then I learn a lot from my team around what are the trends that are happening in market. Uh, they are so much cooler than I am and are so ingrained in pop culture that I, I tend to learn a lot around that. And then I guess the final thing is just been reading a lot about uh, chat GPT and sort of how that's yeah, impacting the, the world around us. Yeah, I've been playing around with it, too. It's pretty remarkable. I asked it a question the other day about how the technology is going to affect advertising. Unbelievable, the answer I got. Yeah, it's like, holy I asked shit. it. I asked him, what will Jim Stengel ask me as the CMO of MailChimp during our interview? And it played a whole interview uh, back and forth with me. It was pretty fascinating. Wow. Well, you have to tell me if, if it was pretty correct <laughs> after the interview's over. I know. We'll have to check it out. I like to throw some curveballs. So I probably didn't get everything right. <laughs> now, what do you feel like most CMOs should have on their voracious learning list? Ooh, it's a good question. Um I, you know, I think it goes back to what I'm, what I believe is the core of what we do, and that's craft and connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about it as, you know, people live to connect, and work is no different. Um, and craft yields connection, and connection yields craft. And so I think it's a combination of what's going on in the industry and how to uh, how to do great marketing, uh, and whether that's a pan of like psychology or uh, or technology or uh, really just learning different um, different practical ways to get to your customers that your uh, peers or uh, different industries are looking at. Uh, and then on connection, it's really how to, how to peel back the onion and connect the teams around you, how to be vulnerable t- uh, with them and create that, I guess, the, the, the group connection that yields mm-hmm. out the most innovative and, and fun ideas to work on. Well, you talked about happiness a minute ago. There's this new book out, The Good Life, and it's about this really long Harvard study on happiness and what makes people happy. And I mean, the number one finding by a long shot is people who keep connections going and who have strong relationships and connections are the happiest. It's just it boils down to that. And uh, and I think it made me it made me call a couple friends I haven't talked to in a long time after I read that. And I had wonderful chats with all of them. So I think it's true at work. It's true at home. It's true everywhere. Uh, keeping connected is it's what it's all about. And I think the, the core of marketing is exactly that, right? Yep. That you connect to customers and you connect to people at the end of the day in different ways. Yeah. Makes them happier. Makes us happier. It's just a virtuous, wonderful circle. <laughs> yes. Now, the second one, fearlessness. This is a strong belief for you. So why is that? I think it comes from experience where um, probably in the first few years of my career, it was naivety uh, rather than fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can I can talk about some some experiences that perhaps won't make sense, but they have sort of built my fearlessness over time. When I was um, 17 or 16, I truly believed I was going to be a rock star. Um, I was going to get on stage. I was performing in hotels in Israel. I was, uh, I was going to make it in the industry. Uh, That's fearless. <laughs> that, that obviously didn't pan out, but, um, but I, um, one of my favorite, uh, artists came to my town, my small town. And he, I think it was for, uh, the equivalent of Valentine's day. And I said, uh, I, I went backstage. I sort of found my way there. And I said, I want to sing with you. I want to sing this duet with you, which was at the time, like his best, you know, uh, his best single. And, uh, and he was like, who are you? And, um, and then I, I sort of said, well, I, I'm sure you won't, uh, you won't regret it. And, and I got on stage. Right. Um, and it was one of the most spectacular moments in, in my childhood that I remember. Um, and then, you know, at New Balance, um, I, I worked a lot on what then was called the Women's Initiative. It's kind of crazy to think that we can call something the Women's Initiative. But uh, New Balance and a lot of the footwear companies in the past had made female uh, shoes as a derivative of men's shoes, mm-hmm. meaning they use men's last yeah. and sort of put girly colors and, um, and materials on them. And it was... 
me and another colleague of mine that sort of said, wait, what if we thought about this differently? What if we thought about the true needs of women in the in, in the gym or wherever? Um, and that sort of spun into the women's initiative and a whole line of women's footwear and cross training. And I think through my career, I've sort of been uh, raising my hand and saying, what if? Right. And, and just seeing. Um, and I think that fearlessness, what's the what's the what's the worst that can come of it? Someone can say no and you're on to the next thing. So what are you fearless about right now? Uh, doing the best marketing out in the world. And I think we need that these days, right? Because so much is changing so quickly. I mean, it's always been true. But if you're not experimenting, you're not trying new things, you're not you're not pushing ourselves or teams, then you're going to get irrelevant. Exactly. So passion is the third one. And I love how you connect passion with self-awareness. We each need to determine what we are passionate about. Think about that, what drives each of us. And this obviously changes over our career. So can you speak a bit about how your passions have shifted over the course of your career and why? Yeah, um, I think I started my career in product design um, and my passion was really about creatively exploiting constraints. And that came from a background that was exceptionally modest. And, and that coupled with my experience in the Israeli intelligence forces sort of got me thinking about how do you create these new experiences a little differently? Um, and all I was passionate about was these insights. Really, I went to design school and everybody was passionate. I went to design school for product and furniture design. And my product, my furniture design colleagues uh, were very much obsessed with aesthetics and visuals. And I was obsessed with what does this say about the person using it and how can we make it better? Um, and so that was sort of my passion and continues to be my passion across my career. Um, as I as I got into New Balance, I realized the passion, my passion was actually bringing products to life. And that was commercialization and business and P&Ls and brands. Um, and as I went into Unilever, um, it was sort of bridging I think the emotional and the functional together in that insight um, and working on brands that had a mission that I believed in. Um, and I think that, you know, and at the time I also had kids. And so my passion changed a little bit to, I need to be, a, I, I want to be a mom for a little bit and, and also have a career. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. My passion then uh, turned to uh, how do, how am I um, expanding on being a people leader? Um, and I think there was a, a point in my career where it was kind of like, how do, how can I be a, a people leader of a small group? How do I lead in, in larger groups? Um, then when I got to into it, I realized how much of an impact we could have, we could make for small businesses. And my passion became just touching as many small businesses as possible and making their day to day better, um, in a way that was still creative and, um, and fun and uh, brought out the best of my teams. And then I think in the last few years, it's really been around how do you bring teams together to form something that is very special? Um, and specifically for me, it's sort of how do you create the environment by which you feel and the team feels like this is the best work of their career um, is, is what I'm really passionate about. That's a powerful uh, standard. I've, I've said that to many teams in my career too, just to say, let's make this time we're together something we really remember and where we do something significant that is part of our life forever. And, you know, there's some interesting research out of the Kellogg School that we remember so little in our life. When you look back right. on it, the percentage we remember is unbelievably small. And the things that we do remember are the powerful ones emotionally. And if we can have experiences with teams in our careers, which they remember, it says right. something very powerful about what we did together. And that is usually associated with great business results. A hundred percent. Yes. We kind of cultivate that into a hashtag on our team called beat our best together. I love it. All right, the last one, humility and curiosity supercharging each other. I've never really heard anyone put those together that directly. So tell us why, in your mind, they supercharge each other. 
if you think about humility as the ability to say, I don't really know everything or don't know a lot um, and being very vulnerable about that um, and curiosity, this um, passion to learn, um, then essentially what you're doing is you're continuously learning and continuously asking those around you to come learn with you um, and bring bring her best. And so I think about my team when I uh, on MailChimp when I first started and I had no idea what I was walking into. I was uh, obviously so inspired and humbled by the opportunity and the brand, but um, didn't know the business, didn't really know um, didn't know how to build on this foundation of awesomeness that was uh, before us. Uh, and so walking in and saying, hi, I'm Michelle. I, I don't really know much. You can ask a bunch of stupid questions. Humor me. Please ask me the same. Let's learn together. Um, but also being super, super curious and learning a ton around me um, and bringing sort of external thinking back into the team. That's sort of how I think about it. Supercharging. And you just rattle off some of the things you do, but if you could kind of summarize that and how you operationalize it and how you work and how you lead, I think it'd be really helpful. Sure. Um, I write a weekly email to my team called the Weekend Review, and it takes a lot, um, a lot of times, about an hour and a half and two hours of work in a week. And what it does is um, dimensionalize uh, a few things. One is here's the awesome people news of the week. So it brings together sort of things that we didn't know about people. Um, and we usually get those, uh, apart from birthdays and anniversaries, we usually get those nuggets from uh, a fun channel in Slack that we hold, mm-hmm. um, where once a week I will usually Slack the team with sometimes an absurd, sometimes a really vulnerable moment. Uh, I've been known to show pictures of my um, my son's meltdowns in the morning and say, like, mornings are really interesting here. Um, but it kind of opens up to uh, the team to uh, their their moments, uh, their passions, uh, whether it's cooking or what they did on the weekend. Um, and then so we, t- we take some of that and we pull it together as well as, um, you know, what's the gift of the week? Mm-hmm. Uh, we also share awesome uh, work of the week. So we connect the dots for um, different people on the team as to what's happening and how does it all connect um, and recognizing their uh, contributions one by one and, and within teams. Um, and I bring in a, an external inspiration, which is usually uh, from my reading or my listening uh, into that email, which keeps me current because I have to have content. Um, yeah. And it's sort of um, me. It, it was it was sort of a way for me to to keep myself learning, uh, even when I didn't have time. And so what you'll do, what you'll see me do is I'll make dinner for the kids while listening to an audiobook, or uh, I'll definitely read at night and stuff like that. Um, but constant learning. One of my the favorite mentors is David, David Rubin. I used to see him walking in the hallways at Unilever, always looking at his phone, always reading. And I think I've become yeah. more and more like him in that sense. He's been a guest on the show. It was a great episode. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. All right, I want to shift your career path for a bit before jumping into your CMO role at MailChimp. You spent about seven years at Unilever before joining into it about five and a half years ago. These are two crazy, highly admired companies they high, highly value marketing and brand building and leadership. But I want to ask you, having pretty deep experience now with both of them, what could they teach each other? Oh, that's such a great question. I think Unilever taught me a ton about how, uh, how to do positioning that merges emotional and functional so well. Um, my first, uh, my first rotation was on Magnum ice cream as we launched the brand in Mm, North America. (laughs) It's so good. Uh, but we had one sentence of positioning, which was Chanel on a stick. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that sort of, uh, the ability to distill, uh, such a clear positioning and then sort of take it out into the market, um, 
I think is something that Unilever does exceptionally well. And SaaS brands are very, it's really hard with SaaS brands to find that um, intersection of uh, emotional and functional. Although I think with MailChimp, there's a a lot more of that. Uh, We call ourselves high growth with a soul uh, for a reason. But I think there's a lot of the the positioning that could be learned uh, from Unilever as it relates to Intuit. they're both very customer obsessed. So they're very similar in that sense. Um, I think on the MailChimp side, it's interesting because in SaaS, you get to have such an intimate relationship with your customer because you touch them in so many points and you have so much data about them. And so I wonder if there's a way to get to um, being there not only on the first and second moment of truth as as it relates to CPG, but sort of in the day-to-day experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you can't quite, um, I think about dub body wash, you can't quite go into the shower with people. Um, but as I think about our customers on, on um, the MailChimp side, once they're in product and they're using something and we see them get stuck, we immediately can reach out to them in multiple ways and have a, and have a meaningful connection that helps them and, and sort of brings them along. So. What's the major leadership lesson that you took away from your time at Unilever? Um, the people work on a challenge, but they actually, um, they're driven by a mission and a purpose. Um, I worked on many brands at Unilever, but I think working on Dove uh, specifically iterated to me, uh, reiterated to me that working on a mission is something that just powers you in the mornings uh, and it gets it gets people together and thinking in innovative ways that they probably wouldn't have if it was just a job for revenue and new, you know, new customer usage. I often wonder why everyone doesn't see that. Because once you experience it, you realize you don't want to work any other way. Exactly. So how did you bring that forward to Intuit and MailChimp, that philosophy? I mean, I think Intuit from its founding, I mean, it was founded by a former P&G person, which you probably know, Scott Cook. And I think and he's very customer centric and very empathetic and a real listener mm-hmm. and learner and a curious person. So, um, but how did you bring it forward? That kind of pivotal experience you had at Unilever leading this, this mission-driven brand, Dove, which has affected so many people, just in terms of how they think about purpose and activating it and organizational culture. Yeah. Um, I, I had the opportunity to come into, into it as we were repositioning and uh, relaunching the QuickBooks brand. And specifically, we were going from accounting software to a suite of business tools. And that required the world to understand what we stood for and why. Um, Otherwise, you can't really extend a brand in a meaningful way. Uh, What was interesting was that I walked in and this company was so customer obsessed, really understands why they do what they do and is so powered by it and energized by it. But nobody could really tell you in a sentence or two what it is that they did or as I I would think, tell their grandmother. Right. Um, And so we had to very quickly come back with what is our positioning and what is our, you know, what are our brand foundations? What's a brand book look like? Um, and we were able to pull together a meaningful um, depiction of, of what QuickBooks did. And we were the champions of those who dare to dream. Um, we were backing those who didn't back down. And we really got to the uh, distilled insight that working for yourself is really lonely and um, re- or rewarding, but also very lonely mm-hmm. and unpredictable, right? Um, and that um, was a tool that I took from Unilever as it relates to how you dis- depict the brand, how do you get everybody galvanized around that mission um, and talking in that same language. And what we were able to do then is uh, talk to not only customers, but also the employees and the different functions and say, brand isn't a marketing thing. Brand is a company thing. So you were having this great run at Intuit, and then Intuit acquired MailChimp. And you were pretty promptly sent over as CMO. So tell us about that. Here's here's an acquisition. You're coming from the acquirer. I've been in that situation once in my career. It was hard. It was really hard. And... I'd just like you to tell us how did it happen? 
How did you get asked to do that? How did it feel? Um, I remember getting a call from my boss on a Saturday morning, which we all know is not a good signal. Uh, And he said, I need to fill you in on some confidential information. We're looking to acquire this company. I want you to come in and, and do some of the marketing integration work. And so I'd come in for a couple of months and sort of started working on what would it look like if we acquired, what would it, how would we, um, how would we not integrate, but um, collaborate between the two mm-hmm. companies um, and brands? Uh, what would it mean? And for me, it was kind of like a dream come true, right? Like I get to get closer to this brand that I had admired forever. Um, and I think the the passion was there and the opportunity to essentially take this amazing foundation and, and uh, brand-led growth of a, com- a company with lots of brand-led growth and sort of layer on the performance that Intuit is known for was there. And so it was just asked to uh, take the CMO role um, and honestly couldn't believe it. Um, and I walked in and I think, I remember my first meetings, they were terrifying. Um, and it's this unique situation where, you as a leader come in and you know this brand so, or you think you know this brand so well, um, and you're terrified to screw it up, uh, and you need to grow it even faster than it it grew before, and it's amazing. So you're wondering how, and then there's the team on the other side that's terrified, uh, that's terrified of what they gonna do. Are they are is the brand gonna live? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Mailchimp specifically, the whole company loves this brand so much. Um, that it was everybody was looking at where where's this going you know are the changes going to come is what she's telling us really what she's telling us so there's a lot of trust building in the very beginning and I'm really really grateful to the team that they just welcomed me with open arms and I think we were able to have some really good uh, transparent conversations that sort of opened up the okay how do we do this together Tell us about the first few months. How did you, you said a lot of trust building. And so what did you do to onboard with this, you know, new company in your portfolio? I'm sure the team was feeling a bit vulnerable, which you've already talked a bit about. But if you advise someone who is doing a similar thing, going in at a higher level, like at CMO, to a company that's been acquired, what would you advise them to do? Uh, learn and listen. Um, so I spent the first few months uh, learning a ton and listening. I also spent a lot of the time uh, creating some framework by which we we as a team saw the same data and could have uh, great conversations around it. Because one of the hardest things to do is to come in and understand how the business is doing and what it's doing and why. Uh, when you're used to seeing it one way uh, as the acquiring company and the company who's running it is used to seeing it a different way. And so one of the first things that we did was sort of before we set goals, before we were clear on like next steps uh, were these, um, call them performance measurement reviews, where we looked at the funnels and we had really in-depth discussions about what they meant. Um, And I asked a ton of just really basic questions, which I think in turn enable the team to sort of um, get to be more at ease with me and ask questions in return. And then we started celebrating. We got to what our goals were going to be and we moved slowly. And uh, I think people were like a little freaked out that, you know, how slow can this be? How we're just learning how to work with each other. But we started celebrating small successes and um, not even successes, unlocks. So we'd sit, uh, we sat in a meeting. I remember this so well. It was one of my first performance review meetings with the team and people were scared of talking to me. So I would only get my staff to talk to me. And I really was desperate for the junior folks to speak because they have such great ideas and such great knowledge. And, um, and, I was trying to figure out why the data was saying one thing, but the business was performing in a different way. And uh, and this woman, Jasmine, said um, she gave an idea of where her hypothesis was, and it was brilliant. And I said, oh, my gosh, Jasmine, you need a kitchen button. Uh, and that night I sent her <laughs> like a cash register kitchen button. 
And that became sort of a, a little bit of uh, some of the fun and the joyful uh, you know, celebrate, celebratory moments. We now have like 50 coaching buttons across our team. Uh, but we started celebrating these small unlocks, these small green shoots, these small uh, differences. And the team started gaining momentum and a lot of trust um, and also uh, really showed that they wanted to win together uh, and, and got more and more competitive. So it was really fun sort of watching it, but it, it certainly didn't happen overnight. I know you're very proud of your internal agency, your in-house agency, Wink. Now, could you speak a bit about why it's so special? I mean, it's, it's so many things I know that they are part of, and you're you're involved in so many non-traditional, interesting areas of content and engagement. Yeah. You know, I came in and I'd never worked with an internal agency before, mm-hmm. so I was quite um, – I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. Um, and what I learned was this was a group of – 40, 50 individuals that really believe that they can change the world with creativity and more so the world of work. Um, and that spanned everything from game design to um, web design to creative for uh, campaigns. Um, and so not only were they creative, but they actually knew the product and the brand really, really well. Um, and as a result, could have a really big impact at speed because once we had an insight or we found something in pop culture, they were able to move on it really, really quickly. It's hard to explain when you don't know the individuals, but they have just this fire in their eyes where they're, they're like, we are going to change the world for entrepreneurs and marketers and small businesses. Um, and they just are so passionate about the mission um, and so ready to go. And um, I think the relationship that we've been able to foster because of the continuity of it um, means that there's a lot of trust and they can bring to the table really radical ideas. And even if they don't come to fruition, there's another idea that will. Um, so it's been it's been a really interesting experience uh, sort of managing this creative force. Uh, well, they sort of manage themselves because they're so different um, in a good way. But yeah, it's it's been, I think it's our secret sauce, to be honest. How was that culture created? Was it a leader or was it a, what, what I mean, what you just described, everyone would love, right? They would love their creative yeah. team to be like that. They love their whole group to be like that. So what was the, what do you think the origin of it was or is? I think it's a few components. One, we have really best in class talent uh, that uh, Katie Patachny, who runs the agency, brought in. Um, and, and so they're, they're holding themselves to the highest standards. Um, the second is when I came in and there was a question around, are we going to sort of lean into performance versus the brand and where is this going? Um, my ask to them was make the brand bigger and better than it ever was and make it pop in pop culture like it's never popped. Uh, this is our time to shine. This is sort of a new wave of MailChimp. And they took that really seriously. Um, and I can say those things, but they can only bring them to fruition. Right. Um, yeah. and so they felt really, um, they felt empowered and they felt like anything was on the table and ideas big, big to small could come through. Um, that resulted in just a lot of experimentation on their end across different mediums, across different platforms. And we were doing work that at the same time was really changing, um, trajectory for the business. So we had launched a whole new website. Uh, we, um, we launched our first truly global campaign with Guess Less, Sell More. We, um, we launched an activation at New York Fashion Week. We were all over the place and, the, and their fingerprints were all over it. A lot of my guests on the show talk about the trade-offs or the tension or the balance between performance and, quote, brand marketing. You seem to have that pretty well figured out at MailChimp. How have you done that? Um, I don't know that we've done that, but we're trying. Um, this brand has, this business has grown through brand-led growth uh, for, for most of its uh, existence. Uh, and what do you mean when you say in, brand-led growth, Michelle? M- meaning uh, brand activations and uh, really what we would call top-of-funnel type of, of mm-hmm. work less performance marketing, uh, life, uh, life cycle marketing and, 
uh, more uh, bottom of funnel slash in product. And um, and it's all been as a result of its exquisite uh, clarity on who it is and what it does and zigging and zagging when people are sort of walking a straight line um, in the market and bringing new experiences to folks. And as a result, it's gotten a lot of trust from its prospects and customers that we know how to do marketing. Um, but in, in the world we live in today, we need to sort of marry the two. Um, I think what we've what we found is that brand can fuel performance in a way that it's never done before. Um, we saw that with New York Fashion Week, where we really had a brand activation, but the reality was that we were collecting a ton of first-party data. Um, and one of the goals that we had for, for last year was to grow up a little bit as a brand, um, to become a little more sophisticated, to showcase the maturity that we had as a brand while keeping our DNA in that uh, expert absurdist, to show the advanced marketers that we were now serving and our product was now serving that we had everything for them. Um, and so we had lots and lots of real conversations around what happens if we put product into our comms? What happens if we put product uh, front and center at uh, down funnel on the, on the website? And the data showed the differences uh, and, the, and the wins. And the team was very data backed. Uh, but at the same time, there, we always have this like really good debate and a conversation around, well, what's the MailChimp version of this? If you took off our logo, would someone know? Right. Um, That's good. And and I think also um, we got really competitive together. Um, we we took some uh, we took some risks that maybe didn't have immediate ROI results that we could point to, but had a lot of clear um, you know brand uh, attribute lifts uh, that then ended up in uh, you know bottom of funnel lifts over time. Um, and that in itself helped the team understand that they could uh, fuse the two. We very early on, I think it was like November, December, uh, there was a HubSpot conference and we are trying to go up market and talk to these customers. There was a HubSpot conference in Boston, also where our uh, competitor Clavio sits. We decided we were going to um, we were going to paint the town in, in yellow and help people understand why we are the number one email marketing platform. We um, wrapped taxis that took people from their hotels to the conference. And in the taxis, we ran ads, we ran education, we ran inspiration. Um, and it poured the whole time uh, of the conference. So everybody was in our cabs. And that for the creative team was like, oh, wow, we could do something really, really cool as it relates to creativity, but actually drive a lot of performance. Um, so I think it's a lot of, uh, a lot of experimentation, but also a lot of small wins, right. That sort of build the confidence. So you use this term expert absurdist in that, that explanation you just gave us about how you think about performance and brand marketing. Tell us about expert absurdist. What is that your description of the brand? Where does it come from? Yeah. Is it, has it worked for you really well? How do you be sure everyone understands it? Yeah, it's sort of our brand character. It's how we show up in the market. Um, we're, we're this quirky brand uh, that we say we, if you look at our mascot, uh, Freddie, who's part of our logo, mm -hmm. uh, the chimp, he's winking. And really what you should look at is his wink. And the wink signals that we get you and we got you. Uh, and so we think about the expert absurdist as we're there with the right tools at the right time, um, whether it's inspiration or education or marketing tools. Um, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. Uh, we do when it comes to the actual ROIs and campaign deliveries for our customers. Um, but then we know that our customers are quirky. Our customers are different. They want to connect to us in a different way. Um, we know that they also connect to us offline, right? So it's just a way of coming to life for the brand. And we say that in a sea of blues and greens of small business and B2B, we're very bright yellow. Now, Man MailChimp seems to have always believed in brand. And a lot of B2B companies and tech platforms 
don't or struggle with that. Why is it that MailChimp has always believed in brand and has built this beautiful brand that Intuit saw potential for and purchased it and things have gone very well? What What is it about the DNA of this company that is so strong in, in its belief in brand building? Yeah, I, I think it's two pieces. One is um, it looks like a SaaS brand, but it's actually a lifestyle brand. Uh, it's, it's almost like there we say the Nike of SaaS, uh, mm-hmm. or it's trying to be that. Um, it thinks about the customer experience on the platform and off the platform. Um, that is really about the connection of um, the art and creativity and the science of data, right? And the product itself is very much built off of data and um the data advantage of sending billions of emails a day that then with AI models and so forth enables our customers to be so much smarter. Um, the brand takes that and um, delivers that in, in different meaningful ways. And we think about it as democratizing access to different audiences, to different inspiration, to, um, to different tools. And we think about the marketers that we serve or the small businesses that we serve. We think about their day to day. And we talked about connection before. You don't just connect to someone on a platform, right? Uh, we think about marketers and sort of what they do in their day to day lives and what they're listening to and what they're interested in. And um, you know, surprise, surprise, they're really interested in creativity. And so we go and find uh, craft experts and talk about um, their craft and how you know, we we ha- we just had a an amazing launch with Bjork and her Sonic Symbolism podcast, um, and that was all about her creative process and how she essentially founded a genre. Um, so we think about like what are they interested in outside the platform? What are they engaging with in their life? And then how do we sort of build that relationship with them over time through data, which allows us to personalize this sort of journey with compounding value over time. You and your team know a lot more about marketing people than most companies, right? Because these are your customers. Yeah. So what what have you learned about marketing people that our listeners could find useful and effective in how they approach their teams and their jobs and their brand? Yeah. Well, one, they're very skeptical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the second is they really care about creativity and innovation. So they're actually obsessed yeah. with uh, learning about those outside of their day-to-day work life. Um, like I said, it's one of the core reasons why um, why we're activating in those spaces. Uh, podcasts around creativity, podcasts around partnership mm-hmm. um, and connection are really relevant to them. Um, and they're looking for it in all in all sorts of places. New York Fashion Week is a, is another place where they're looking at creativity from another lens, right? Um, they're also very data backed. And so it's really, you can't wish wash them with, uh, fluffy claims. You really need to be granular about what it is that you're delivering to them and why. Um, and yeah, and they really want to see you in action. So it's, it's sort of, I would think about creativity. I would think about where they find the inspiration for their creativity. And then I would think about when they're doing business, they're in business and they really want the facts. I think our listeners will see themselves in that answer, Michelle. Now, I want to switch to the creative brief. My first question is, you grew up in Israel, but have not lived there for many years. Do you get homesick much? Um, I do. Uh, but now I have my kids and my husband here, so it feels like a, you know, our family, but for mm-hmm. sure. How often do you get back? Uh, once a year, usually. Yeah. 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 And what do you what do you like doing first when you go back? Is there a food, a drink, a place? I just like to hang out with my parents and have some yeah. coffee in their in their living room. That sounds sweet. Now, the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? I think there's two. Um, one is Kit Kat. My <laughs> Yeah, my great grandmother, uh, who's British, who was British, 
my grandmother would take me to her home where a uh, senior citizen's home where she was. Uh, she had Alzheimer's and so we would bring her Kit Kats. Um, and she wouldn't remember who we were, who my grandmother was, where she was, who she was, but she knew that 4 p.m. was Kit Kat time. Oh. Um, and it was, it was like a lovely experience with her. Um, the other one is uh, Yamaha and specifically Yamaha piano, pianos. Um, I started playing piano at the age of eight. And um, I think that it's, it's hard to explain at the age of eight, but now as I look back, I think it was the first brand that really allowed me for self-expression. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a home where, like, I didn't really decide what I was going to wear or what I was going to eat at the age of eight, but I could totally decide what I was on, what I was going to play. Do you still play? I do, yeah. On a Yamaha? On a Yamaha. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't afford a Yamaha for, for the longest time. And when I could, it was this magical moment. Your most memorable course that you took at Wharton? Oh, um, probably Jerry Wynn's, uh, it was called uh, um, Disrupting Mental Models, something along those lines. Yeah, it was really about how innovation is created through different types of thinking. Jerry will be ha happy to hear this. What do you think your superpower is as a leader? Um, humility. Uh, just connecting to people and first and foremost, wanting to wanting them to connect back. What are you working on as a leader? Uh, I'm very biased to action and as a result to speed. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of leaders will relate to this. The, the more senior you get, the more people you need to lead. The, the bigger the lift is, the slower it gets. And so having the patience uh, to move the, the big ship, but knowing that once it's moved, it's, it's really on its way. So how did you make that shift to be able to move from the action orientation to, you know, a bit more intentional, maybe a, a bit slower so people can come along with you? I mean, any tips on that? Because it is something a lot of people struggle with as they get more and more senior. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've perfected it by any means, um, and I'm still extreme bias to action and really want speed. Um, but I think very clear communication and constant communication um, where people understand where you're coming from, what you're thinking, how are you thinking about it, and, and clear communication in the other direction, right? It's, it's much easier to know why things aren't moving as quickly as you'd want them to when you realize the um, complexity and richness of, of the work that's being done. Who's been the most influential mentor in your career? David Rubin. Um, we, I worked for him at Unilever. He, uh, he was the first leader that, I mean, I'm not even going to talk about his marketing magic. He's just beyond exceptional. Um, but he was the first leader that was really authentic and, uh, and, I, and, and was the most senior person that I, I met that was actually himself. Um, and I could see how I could grow up to be somebody who's not one of these cookie cutter, like super charismatic people uh, in front of teams, but actually this really smart, genuine individual um, who could bring together a team and sort of take them out to like win in market. We're recording this episode around Valentine's Day. So what relationships are you most grateful for in your life? Um, my husband, uh, we've been best friends since when I was 18, probably 16. Oh, wow. How did you meet? We met in high school. We didn't date in high school. We dated when I first started my army service. Um, but I think he, and he is an XBNG -er, you'd love to know, I'm sure. Um, but he, he's one of the I first like him people already. that there you go. Uh, he's one of the first people that introduced me to brand building and, um, and I think he's, we just build on each other's uh, strengths and are there for, uh, to hold up in the weaknesses. And we've, we've sort of built everything from scratch together. Um, and we've made a lot of transitions and trade-offs together. And uh, yeah, I think he's there when I need to, to talk about a business problem and he's there when I want to talk about a life problem. Um, yeah. So how do you deal with the the conflict I'm sure you have when you're in the grocery store and you're looking at a brand from Unilever or a brand from P&G? Which one do you buy? 
I'm always right. So it has to be a Louvre. <laughs> <laughs> do you no, buy, no, any, we, do you we, buy we, any PNG brands? We, we buy Tide. How's that? Okay, good. All right. I'll, I'll give you that. Well, you should be buying Tide. It is better, you know. <laughs> I, can show, I can show you the demos. <laughs> yeah. So, Michelle... This has been a wonderful conversation. I, I've asked you a lot of thoughtful questions. I, I'll, I'll now turn the microphone to you. Do you have anything you want to ask me before we sign off? What's your favorite Unilever brand? Magnum. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, it's not the first brand I remember in my life, but we, PNG sent us to Eastern Europe when my kids were young. And it was my first general manager job. So I was changing countries, changing levels, blah, 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 bringing the family with me. We lived in Prague and Magnum wasn't in the U.S. then. And I just remember taking walks and stopping with the kids and getting a Magnum bar, you know, and all the beautiful little streets and yeah. cafes. And and it was just part of our ritual. And you know, we'd go out for a walk at night or on a summer day. And Magnum was very much a part of that. So if you ask my kids that, they would have very vivid memories and they still love the brand. That's amazing. Now, it's a great company, by the way. And I have many friends from Unilever. Uh, I have, you know, Keith Weed and I go back and forth a lot. I went to the flower show with him last year. He invited oh, yeah. my wife and I to the Chelsea Flower Show. Uh, we did that together. Uh, Simon Clift and I have skied together after we both left our companies. So uh, the PNG people and Unilever people have a lot in common. Yeah, they even get married once in a while. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Michelle, thank you. Thanks so much. You too. That was my conversation with Michelle Tate. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is curiosity. We talk a lot in this show about how this characteristic is so important for marketers and for CMOs. Michelle takes this to a new level. She is a highly curious person, which helps her be a more effective leader and frankly helps her be a more fulfilled happy human being. Second takeaway, the importance of trust building in a new role. Trust building is important all the time, but especially when you're moving into a new role, new team in a vulnerable situation for yourself and for the team. Michelle went to it, went to MailChimp after Intuit acquired it. And the first thing she did was go in listening to build trust with her new team. Third takeaway and relate it, our responsibility as CMOs is to build really strong cultures in our direct teams and throughout our company. One ritual Michelle has to build this culture is a weekly letter that goes out at the end of the week with fun things, things they're proud of, celebrations, work that happened that week, which is really, really important for the company and silly things as well. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.